0: Um, Right now, we are going to uh, be chatting to the lifetime spouse of uh, late South African stalwart, uh, Ibrahim Ibrahim, or fondly known to his friends as Ibi. Uh, Miss Shannon Ibrahim joins me on the line. The book is out beyond fear, Reflections of a Freedom Fighter, the story of Ibrahim Ibrahim. Good morning to you, Miss Shannon. How are you doing this morning?
1: Uh, good morning, Bridget. I'm very well. And good morning to the listeners.
0: Thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to uh, chat to us about the life and times of your beloved Ebi. Uh, um, what a fascinating story. One doesn't even know where to uh, begin. But perhaps I begin here um, in the books forward um, that uh he, um, was penned by uh, former judge Albie Sachs. He, the he's also, by the way, an acclaimed author and former justice of the uh, first Constitutional Court of South Africa. Judge uh, Albie reflects on how. Uh, Albie, (laughs) as he referred (laughs) to him, remained the most human of human beings and goes further to ask the question, where does this superhuman strength come from? Um, Is this the man that you you knew? And I mean, no one would have known him better than than yourself. Would, Would you describe him as being the most human of human beings?
1: I certainly would describe him as being the most human of human beings and very unusual because he had been through so much, and as Albie says in the Ford, you know he just went through more more than most people had gone through in terms of torture and and torment in the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, but when I knew him, I, I met him in 1998 and lived with him from the year 2000. He was such a quiet, understated person. He never boasted about what he had been through. He always took a back seat. He was never looking for accolades. Um, and and I, I, I found him to be someone very different <clears throat> from this hero that Albie described. And that you get as a sense from reading the book someone who was beyond fear who had resolved from the beginning that he was willing to die for this cause. Mm -hmm. And they could have tortured him to death, and he would have never betrayed a comrade. So uh, I think that that absolute strength and resoluteness that he displayed throughout the struggle is something I didn't really witness. I was witnessed a fun, adventurous (laughs) person who was very happy to start life all over again and have children at the age of 69 and 71.
0: Wow, Wow! 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 That that's really interesting. Um, one of the things that I all, I picked up from from the book as well was just the recurring themes of obviously uh, resilience and and fortitude and you know especially in a time of adversity. But also to that was um, this this the sort of acknowledgement, as you say, of your beloved Albie. Even within that, even within having the spirit of a fighter, within having the spirit of this man who would die for the cause, um, was still a very quiet, quiet being, was still a very uh, quiet hero, so, so to speak.
1: Exactly. Yes, he is known as Eb. So it's Albie who wrote the Ford, but he refers to him as Eb, as mm. many of the comrades do. And I think that quietness that you refer to is what made him, uh, in his later years, such an effective conflict mediator around the world. And mm. and as uh, one of his comrades said in our book launch at Hyde Park on Thursday evening, mm. he was probably far more recognised around the world than even in South Africa, which was quite interesting. Because when he would go for, you know, in Israel and Palestine, for instance, he met factions from across the political divide. They had such immense respect for him. Mm. Um, Sri Lanka, I think him and Rolf Mayer, who did this conflict resolution work together, had gone maybe 12 times over many years to Sri Lanka to try and mediate between the Tamil Tigers and the government Mm. and find common ground. And the list goes on, you know, Zimbabwe, Colombia. and, And in each conflict zone, I think he really managed to have quite an impact in bringing peace and, and and those are the years that I also had witnessed him. I traveled with him on some of these occasions. Mm-hmm. And to have Rolf Mayer, who had been the deputy minister of law and order, who sat on the state security council when he was kidnapped from Swaziland mm-hmm. and subsequently very viciously tortured in John Forster Square, to have him be so ready to embrace the person who was directly on the other side, who you know would have been aware I'm sure of what he must have been through, mm-hmm. but then to join forces and to explain how South Africa could put its very dark past behind it and tried to build something new was a real testament to his spirit of reconciliation and forgiveness. And I think for most of us that read this book, and and it's sort of beyond belief what he went through, Mm. you know, whether it was, he he was one of the only people who was sentenced twice to Robben Island, Mm. the first time for 15 years, and (laughs) The second time he was on trial for high treason, that was very much in the newspapers between 80, 87 and 89. Mm. Um, and he was, the judge said, You didn't learn your lesson the first time. So I'm sentencing you to a further 20 years on mm. the island. You know, I, I think it's hard to believe that someone who went through all of that. Could come out with such a lack of bitterness and a willingness to reconcile mm. um, across across the board in South Africa,
0: and that definitely uh, says something. I think um, you you know about that particular generation of leadership. That says something about th- their motivation, even for taking up the cause, was was very much not one that was based on on selfish. Um, selfish gain, you know, to sacrifice your life not once but twice um, says something about, about you and the essence of you and 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 how you see your contribution towards humanity, which a lot of people and and even your late husband Ibi uh, often pointed out and pointed out in this book as well that, you know, the leadership of, of yesteryear, of that generation was really against a lot of the the negative connotations that come with leadership of today. Uh, It wasn't about them. It wasn't about uh, factionalism. It wasn't about personal gain. It wasn't about what is in store for me in terms of career reward. Uh, It was about the good of the people and the will of the people.
1: Exactly. You know, at our um, book launch last weekend at uh, the Athol Fuga Theater in Cape Town, we had one of his comrades who had arrived even before E.B. and Mandela on Robben Island. He had gone into the island in 63, and he was very close to E.B. He was uh, called Majajam Dinghi, mm-hmm. and he shared with us how in the early 60s, E.B. had written this paper in Robben Island um, on cliqueism and factionalism. Mm. And he said that cliqueism would be the downfall of our movement. Mm. And he was such a you know, a humble person that he told Majaj, you put your name to this paper because he never wanted to be recognized or mm. even be, be popular. And he said that he had that foresight so many decades ago that the greatest threat to the ANC was going to be factionalism. And I know in these later years he was very disillusioned at and what was happening to his movement, Mm -hmm. the levels of corruption, and just the essence of this factionalism, which is chairing the the party at the core. But, you know, the amazing thing about him, despite his depression watching the Zondo Commission— He kept saying, we have been through worse Mm -hmm. in our history. And I mean, really, when you read the book, you're just stunned by what he had gone through. And he said, we have the capacity to to renew ourselves as a nation, as Mm -hmm. a party, and to build something positive. It's not that impossible. We have to come together. That's the key. And, you know, I think what really stood out for me is like when they went to the island in Mm -hmm.
0: 64,
1: I I don't know if you read that part, but I mean, he was talking about the fact that for a year or two, they were never given toilet paper. Mm. They were looking for leaves and pieces of cement bags on the island to use from all the building that had been going on. Mm. Um, You know, he said many weekends he starved because every day in the quarry, you had to measure the amount of stones you chipped. And if it didn't fill the top of this instrument, Mm. you were given three meals, which meant from a Friday to a Sunday, you were put in isolation and you never got food. Mm. And he said, many weekends I starved like that on the island. And you know, can you imagine sleeping in a cell of eighty people mm. um, on the floor on a scratchy sisal mats on that cold cement floor, and then working all day along the shore with those icy Cape Town winds with very inadequate clothing? So you know, it it, it and it sort of all came full circle because nobody, none of the oncologists could understand last year how did he get lung cancer mm. because he had never smoked but then he was starting to remember that for 15 years he was in the cell of 60 people like it went down to 60 and they were smoking all the time it was always a fight about opening the windows and mm. he must have got secondhand smoke so there's so many aspects of it that you know caught up with him later in life and it's, it's really a story of tragedy but mm. also of hoax. And I, I think that also the very telling thing is he's very well known for having been kidnapped by apartheid intelligence agents in 1986 from Swaziland, mm. where he headed the ANC's underground, um, underground political machinery. And, and as he's been kidnapped by these agents and forced back across the border into South Africa, he says he was just overcome with calmness. Yeah. And he overheard his captors talking about taking him to class which he knew mm. he would have been tortured for months and he wouldn't have spoken, so he would have been tortured to death. And thank goodness they, they, they took him to John Forster Square, where at least there was a record that he had actually been taken there. But, you know, that, that sense of being willing to go through anything mm-hmm. for the liberation of this country, and I think it's for all of us to share this story with young people. It's written very simply and we're on a campaign now to get this into schools and universities because this is what needs to inspire the next generation. And I know my kids are in high school, and the history teacher tells me the boys in the school they're not interested in apartheid; they yes. don't want it rammed down their throat. You know, and if we could help them to understand what this actually meant for people of that generation yeah. and how this struggle is still ahead of us, because the World Bank says that South Africa is the most unequal society in the world. Absolutely. And that's the the book ends that way, is that we fought on Robben Island. We were fighting for a more equal society and we are very far away from that goal today.
0: Absolutely. Uh, it is uh, the voice of uh, Ms. Shannon Ibrahim. We're talking uh, about the uh, memoir. It is an autobiographical autobiographical book chronicling chronicling the life of her beloved Ibrahim Ibrahim, or as he is fondly referred to uh, by his friends and family as Ibi. The book is titled Beyond Fear, Reflections of a Freedom Fighter, the story of Ibrahim Ibrahim. Um, and you bring up so much, uh, Ms. Shannon, um, and I, and I want to s- still sort of just explore this uh, a little bit further because this says so much about you know, uh, the man that E.B. was in his later years, the fact that somebody could go through repeated torture for immense periods of time, um, sentenced not once but twice uh, on Robben Island, the first time, as you mentioned, for 15 years, the second time for 20. Um, And and there's a part in the book where he talks about being um, at John Foster. And uh, a I, I don't know what his ranking was, but a Nicholas Det, Detlef, who said to him, we are going to put you through something. And if you survive, I will be con- convinced that you are not human. I mean, just to hear those words by your torturer, you know, and to go through the indescribable, both physically and mentally, and then come out on the other side of that in your later years with such an effervescence for life and such an appreciation for life, um, you know, and be so light. As as you said at the beginning of our conversation, you've known him as this light, loving, carefree individual, not devoid, obviously, of deep introspection and thoughts, but just a lightness to him, um, you know. I don't think I'd be able to close that chapter of what had happened to me and what had I'd gone through. Um I don't think I'd have the capacity to close it and and just look on the brighter side of things.
1: Exactly. And you know what was so difficult, Bridget, is when there was this in, uh, this reopen inquest into the death of Neil Agate just before COVID, we had gone and sat in that courtroom because we knew that Deep his torture in John Forster Square was being charged with being an accomplice and being part of the murder of Neil Agate. And he was there for the first time. He sat in a court of law in South Africa. He never asked for amnesty despite all the people that he had tortured, Barbara Hogan among them. Mm. He was known as a psychopathic uh, sadistic torturer. Uh, and you'll read in that book, that chapter about EB's girlfriend from Belgium who had done special ops for Joe Slovo. Her name was Helene Pasteur mm. How badly Deetleys had tortured her, laced her spaghetti with poison, mm. taken her to a that where, you know, this poison had caused her body to basically stop functioning. He was such an evil man. And then to have EB sitting on the same benches him in this Neil Agate inquest it was sort of beyond belief I was very emotional Mm -hmm. because what he went through in John Forster Square was something they had never done to anyone else they had spent a year especially wiring the special cell in John Forster with electronics that would then pipe this unbelievably loud noise, like banging, slamming mm. noise into the cell 24 hours a day. I don't know whether they learned that from the CIA or where, but they were they were using this torture because they didn't want to leave marks on his body. Mm. But they knew that it would make a human being go mad. Mm. And he said for all those days, he couldn't sit, he couldn't lie down. When he tried to hold his bowl of mealies to eat, he couldn't hold the spoon your entire nervous system breaks down and he said his mind was hanging by a thread and, you know, no one from the outside world had any idea what was happening to him. And he said he just had to get through this. And eventually, one of the doctors um, said that they, they they had to put him in another cell. He didn't quite believe him, what that what he was saying was happening to him. Mm. But, you know, when the visiting doctor came, they ultimately put him in another cell and, and ordered for him to go to the hospital, which deeply's prevented. So, you know, it's, it's just this circle of viciousness and violence that he went through. I, I never understood how he could be so psychologically okay yeah. in our life I mean I was going with him in his late 60s gorilla trekking <laughs> in the Congo with porters on either arms we went and did a camel safari in the Great Thar Desert between India and Pakistan That was a whole—all of that's described in the book. But to have a man who leads to such hell, to have such a love of life, and that look on his face when his daughter was born, I, I think it was something that was just so precious. And when I met him, he had nothing. Like, he was in Parliament in 1998, and he had no home. He had no furniture. You know, he was just living in Acacia Park, that parliamentary complex. And, you know, just the joy to be able to give him a chance at a normal life Mm. was something for me that made my life whole. And now I think our children are still not over his passing six months ago. Mm. They were so, so close to him. They would spend hours talking to him about history and politics so he was really irreplaceable in that sense and my hope is that this book will inspire people to fight for something beyond and bigger than themselves because we really have a me generation where yes. everything is about how much money what type of car and who is fighting for those people that live on the margins of society we just forget about them altogether. and if every one person could just share this book with a young person who could then we could try to change their mindsets about the future and get them to work for the better of our country I think we will have accomplished something with this book
0: absolutely and I think part of the secret um, you know to your earlier comment about uh, the youth sort of being very nonchalant about um, y- y- the struggle for freedom in this country is part of the secret is to tell the stories of, of the likes of uh, your beloved E B. Uh, is to humanize is the struggle you know and to tell those intimate stories of those who lived in it day to day both the good the bad you know the the victories the defeats um and and also the triumphs and the lightheartedness um it's only when you are invested in someone's personal journey that you can then maybe at times see the the bigger picture of of everything else and we don't tell enough stories um, about some of our struggle stalwarts heroes and heroines who you know who weren't as popularized as some of the others. And I think maybe yeah. it's time to introduce, um, and I'm a big proponent of introducing new names to the history pages, names that we've never heard of before, um, and learning about their contributions, big and small, to our journey uh, as collective South Africans. But, you know, I just want to say to to yourself and your family, um, we thank you so much for sharing you know, EB's life and and his history and his contribution with us, um, and uh, we send you all the condolences and all the the love as as you sort of uh, come to terms with with your loss. But what a life well lived! And and at very least, we we can say that uh, in the later years, he got to really really just enjoy. Uh, and really just relax into into the second lease of life and take in the joys and the happiness and the making of the memories uh, with you (laughs) and, of course, the children. Uh, So it's always beautiful to know that there was laughter uh, at the end. Uh, Ms. Shannon, thank you for taking the time. It's been an honor and a privilege. And, of course, uh, we will be encouraging South Africans to go out, uh, add this book to your next book club, Read Beyond Fear, The Reflections of a Freedom Foundation fighter the story of ibrahim ibrahim we're fast approaching the news with just a little bit of time to play a big fat juicy and then we'll come right back thanks bridget thank you